what boundless love, what fathomless grace you have shown to us, O God of compassion. Please turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61 is we're going to talk about this God of compassion, the compassion he has toward us and the compassion that we are to exhibit to others. As you turn there, let me just share with you, uh, next week we're going to begin uh, another Bethany 101 class. It's going to be next Sunday and the following Sunday. And I encourage you, if you're considering uh, making Bethany Community Church your church home or uh, joining us in membership, I encourage you to, to come to those two classes next Sunday and, and the Sunday following. Isaiah 61, and we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 3 together. And please stand with me as we read God's Word together. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we begin our time together. Father, we thank you that you are the God of, of compassion. And, and Father, we are unable to comprehend the depths to which this world has, has sunk as a result of sin and, and oppression. And, and we're unable to fathom the, 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 the depth of, of despair that, that people feel in our world today, that the depth of tragedy that is, that is taking place all over the world. And we think especially, of course, this morning of, of Haiti. But but Father, we are also unable to fathom your grace and your compassion, and, and our, our trust and our confidence this morning is that your compassion exceeds our need even. Your grace exceeds our need. And so we pray for your grace this morning, just that we would understand these principles, and we pray for your grace in the coming day and weeks and months and years that we would be able to implement what we're talking about this morning. We pray especially for the fatherless. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. This Friday marks the 36th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And as as our, our custom on the Sunday preceding that terrible anniversary, we focus on the issue of sanctity of life. In our church, as we think about the sanctity of life, we offer the primary application being the, the need to, to care for the fatherless, for the orphan. The orphan in Scripture is a subset of a, a larger category, a category that we call the, the disenfranchised. To be disenfranchised means to be outside the normal power structure in a society, to be unable to enact change, to be, to be needy, to be destitute. 
The title of our message this morning is A Theology of the Disenfranchised, and it may sound a little dry. I assure you, the subject matter is not. This past week, the country of Haiti suffered a tragedy that I can't wrap my head around. The Red Cross estimates that maybe 40 to 50,000 people have died in this. Uh, the Haitian government says 40,000 people have already been buried. Perhaps another 100,000 are dead beneath the rubble. Whatever the exact number is, I can't comprehend it. Imagine a city the size of Peoria, all the inhabitants, gone. That's the, the level of destruction that we're talking about. That, that many people, gone. And of the people who remain, the coming health crisis and, and the types of, of, uh, of situations that they're going to be facing this next week is also beyond my comprehension. Starvation, dehydration, malaria, violence, it's going to get even more ugly. A theology of the disenfranchised is not some abstract concept. And then this morning as we're talking about the disenfranchised, the poor, the needy, the orphan, the question that we have is, is how do we respond to the needs that we're seeing on the television? How do we respond to the, the needs that we hear about as we, as we talk about the fatherless? It's a hard concept to grasp. This morning, as we talk about the needs of the disenfranchised, we're not the only church that's focusing on this issue. As I've mentioned in the previous weeks, the, the problem sometimes is Christians talk about the disenfranchised, the poor, the impoverished, the foreigner, the orphan. The problem is that sometimes uh, people who would claim to be Christians, I would call them false teachers, present us with a, a choice that's not a biblical choice. Maybe you've, you encountered a similar situation as I did in college. I took an introduction to, to rhetoric class, how, how to write a paper in college when I was a freshman. And in this class, they, they told us about wrong ways to present arguments, logical fallacies. For example, the ad hominem attack, where you attack the person instead of their argument. You say, well, uh, you're a fool, and so therefore your problem is, is your, your, your argument is, is wrong as well, or uh, your haircut kind of makes you look like Hitler, uh, therefore you must be wrong. At attacking the person instead of their argument. Another logical fallacy, an incorrect way to frame an argument, is to present someone with what you call a, a false dilemma or a false choice. You say, well, either you choose A or you must choose B. Your employer comes to you and says, look, uh, the budget is tough in these economic times. Uh, we're either going to have to decrease your salary or cut your health benefits. You say, well, what about option C, cut your salary? Uh, there's other options out there. A logical fallacy is, is a false dilemma. A false dilemma is a, a logical fallacy saying either A must be true or B must be true. The church today is being presented with a false dilemma, a false choice, and it's presented this way. Either Focus on heaven or focus on earth. Either focus on a theology of God and get all caught up in that theological stuff or start really doing ministry. 
And churches that often that are passionate about social issues and justice and the disenfranchised argue that we must focus on that instead of this. Let me read you a quote from a book I was looking at this past week. The book is entitled Justice in the Burbs, like suburbs, Justice in the Burbs. It says, the author argues this. She says, the majority of the American churches in the 21st century preach a perspective on God that fails to incorporate issues of justice. Instead, she says, they, they preach that God cares for us each individually and wants to spend eternity with us in heaven. You see what she's saying? Churches aren't preaching about justice. Instead, they're preaching about God and how he wants to spend eternity with us in heaven. That's a false choice. I reject that one must choose one or the other. In fact, my argument this morning is this, and it's an argument you've heard me make many times. You cannot care for the disenfranchised. You cannot have compassion on those who are in need apart from understanding God and having a passion for him. It is your passion for God that will inevitably flow into your compassion for the weak. Our goal in caring for the weak is worship. That's the central idea of all that I'm going to be talking about this morning. Our central goal, our primary goal in caring for the weak is worship. We want to engage in worship as we care for the weak, and we want those who are weak to someday engage in worship of God as well. That's what drives us. That's what motivates us. That's our passion. Now, as I talk about that this morning, we're going to be talking about two things. The first thing we're going to to talk about is, is God and how God has compassion for the disenfranchised. Point one, God has compassion for the disenfranchised. That's what we'll be talking about first. Secondly, the second thing that we'll be considering is that God's people must have compassion for the disenfranchised. God has compassion for the disenfranchised, and God's people must also have compassion for the disenfranchised. Let's first talk about this idea that God has compassion for the disenfranchised, and we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture here. Uh, First thing that we consider three things as we look at God having compassion for the disenfranchised. The first thing that we see is that God is a compassionate God. We're going to be turning around your Bibles, and if you have trouble uh, turning around too quickly, that's okay. I'm going to be reading them, so uh, I'd encourage you to turn when you can. If I go too quickly, don't worry about it. First passage to turn to is Exodus 33. God is a compassionate God. That's the first truth that if we're going to rightly care for those who are in need, that we must grasp. In Exodus, let me give you the context as you turn to Exodus 33. In Exodus 32, remember there's been this situation with the golden calf. The people were engaged in, in worship of the golden calf. That's behind them. God's, God has uh, relented from uh, consuming them. There's been this plague. Then come, we come to, verse, uh, to, to chapter 33 of Exodus. And God says this. He says, Moses, I want you to go on, lead the people in the promised land. I'm not going to go with them because if I go with them, at some point I'm just going to consume them with fire. It'd probably be better if I didn't go with you. Moses rightly recognizes what's going on and he he pleads with God. He says, God, we need you to go with us. We have no ability to to enter this land on our own. And we come to 
continue in Exodus 33, you come to verse 12, and Moses says this to the Lord. He says, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let, you know, let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Verse 13, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God consents in verse 14. He says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Verse 15, Moses continues, very, very bold here on Moses' part. Verse 15, he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall, I, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, God, if we're going to go into the promised land without you, what's the point? The very thing that makes us a people is that you are with us. We're your people. Very bold on Moses' part. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. In verse 18, I can't believe Moses says this. Please show me your glory. The golden calf thing has just happened. God's consented to allow them not to perish. God has said, not only will I not let you perish, I will continue and I will go with you to the promised land. And Moses keeps on pushing him. Now show me your glory, God. Imagine you have this kid, and this kid wants a snack. You tell him no. The kid throws a temper tantrum. You have to deal with that. Finally, you've, you've dealt with them. The kid says, now can I have a snack? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> The, the people have just engaged in this rebellion, they've turned from God, but it's not the same situation as that interaction with your kid, because now Moses has turned it around, he and the people are, are focused on the glory of God, their passion is for him, and he asks God this audacious request, now will you please show me your glory, and listen to how God responds. On, on what basis does Moses have any hope that God will say yes? Here's the basis of his hope, it's on the character of God. Look at verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be, listen to this, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That is a central verse in understanding this aspect of the character of God. God is a compassionate God. God's interaction with Moses and the people of Israel was never based upon their obedience. There wasn't anything at any point in time where the people of Israel could say, God, look at this, and because of this, make us your special people. God's relationship with Israel was always based upon the fact that he was compassionate. And if you cannot grasp that fact that God's relationship with people is based upon his grace and not upon their worth, you're going to have a hard time implementing compassion in your life to other people. 
We must grasp this truth. God is a compassionate God. God is a compassionate God. And his people, we're going to see, must have compassion as well. God is a compassionate God. And if you don't understand that, your care for others will be anemic. That's the first truth. God has compassion for the disenfranchised. God is a compassionate God. Secondly, secondly, God has special compassion for certain groups of people. God has a special compassion that's demonstrated in Scripture for certain groups of people. Let me turn with you to Exodus chapter 22. In Exodus chapter 22, there are several groups throughout Scripture that we see receive special mention. And the interesting thing is that these I'm going to say that there's three different groups, the, the foreigner, the widow and orphan. I'm combining those together because Scripture normally does. The foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. And here in Exodus 22, we see all these groups mentioned together. See if you can pick them up here. Verse 21 of Exodus 22. God says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If, you ever, t- if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. Why? For I am compassionate. God is a compassionate God, and God has a special compassion for certain groups of people. The foreigner, the person who's, who's in a country that doesn't fit in with that culture, doesn't, uh, doesn't have the, the normal means of support that other people in that culture have. The widow and orphan. The widow and orphan in a culture are, are those, especially in the culture that, that God is speaking to there, the, the widow and the orphan are those who've lost family members that provided support for them and sustenance. The third group is the impoverished, the poor. These three groups Throughout Scripture, we see God has a special compassion and passion for. And what we're going to do in the next little bit here is I'm just going to read some Scripture that talks about God's special care for the impoverished, the disenfranchised. And you can just write these verses down if you'd like. There's going to be several of them. First of all, what we see in these, in these passages that we're looking, looking at that that God is mindful of these people, that is his, his attention and, and his thoughts are to these people. Psalm 918 says this, and, and the reason that I'm, the reason that I'm going, going to be giving so many verses here, and, and really I'm just giving like seriously the, the tip of the iceberg, is because I think sometimes we acknowledge that these passages exist in Scripture, but we don't realize how frequently they occur and, and how strong what they're saying is, or how strong they're saying what they're saying so I'm just going to need to kind of throw some out here. Psalm 918, again, these are passages that show us that God is mindful of the, these, those three categories, the, the poor, the foreigner, the widow and orphan. Psalm 918, 
For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Psalm 10, 17 through 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. This is Psalm 10, 17 through 18. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 68, verse 5, the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 72, Psalm 72, verses 12 through 15 or 12 through 14, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Psalm 113, Psalm 113, verses 5 and 7. Who is like, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Where's God? He's, he's up there high. He's higher than, than all of us. He's so high that he has to look far down on the earth. What does he do? He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. The God who is is far above us, far above all our comprehension, he looks upon those whom we consider beneath us, and what does he do? He raises them up. God is a compassionate God. Psalm 146, verse 9 The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Hosea 14, 14, verse 3, in you the orphan finds mercy. Over and over and over and over again, we see in Scripture, God is mindful of the disenfranchised. God is thinking about them. God is concerned with them because he is a compassionate God. Furthermore, in Scripture, Furthermore, and this should scare us a little bit, there are those who oppose the disenfranchised. And the people who oppose the disenfranchised are setting themselves up for direct confrontation with God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, we read this. He, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Proverbs 23, 10 through 11, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. Malachi 3, 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. James 5, 4, behold the wages of the Workers who mowed your fields, which kept back, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God is a compassionate God. And God has a special compassion for those who are disenfranchised in our society. And those who set themselves up between God and the disenfranchised are in a world of trouble. 
Imagine if you had a family member in another state. This family member was involved in, in some sort of tragedy. You weren't able to, to get a hold of them. They had no access to any resources. And so you, you contacted someone else you knew in that region. You said, I, I'm sending you some money. I have no, I, I'm not able to, to get in touch with my family here. I'm sending you some money. And I want you to take this money and make sure that the needs of, of my family are met there. And you provide this person with all this, this money, and, and later you find out that they took that money and they lived lavishly for themselves and gave a, a little bit to your family. How would you feel about that? What would you say? You'd say, you missed the whole point of why I provided you with those resources. I provided you with those resources so that you could care about the people that I cared about. The person who has been blessed by God with a tremendous amount of, of resources of both, both time and, and energy and finances and withholds those from those who need them is going to be accountable before God. One time when my little brother was much littler, my mother was in the kitchen, and he was in the little dining room eating. And she heard this, sorry, grape. Sorry, grape. And his friend was in there, too. Sorry, grape. Sorry, grape. She comes in, what are you guys doing? We're playing sorry, grape. She goes, well, how do you play sorry, grape? Like this, squish. <laughs> sorry, grape. <laughs> They're squishing grapes and then apologizing to them. A grape doesn't have a lot of ability to defend itself. It's kind of a little soft, right? Imagine a grape being a grape against a cement wall and then splashing it, right? So is the person who stands between God and his care for the disenfranchised. That's not a position I want to be in. How do we fail to care for those who are disenfranchised? We fail to take the resources that God has given us and passionately pursue care for the disenfranchised. Or even worse, as we hear about the needs of the disenfranchised, what do we do? We turn off the television set, turn away from it, fail to engage. God has a special compassion for those who are most in need and is a dangerous place to be between yourself and those who God passionately desires to care for. Third truth here, God's compassion is fueled by his passion for his own glory. Look again at Isaiah 61 that we began to, to read. Isaiah 61, we see a couple things there. We, we've read it already. First of all, we see that, that God has appointed Isaiah to, to, to preach. And what is he going to preach? He's preaching this good news it's a good news to, to the poor, to, to those who are in need. It, it, it uses other descriptions for them. They're, they're people that are bound up in prison. They're people who are mourning. They're people who have been covered in ashes, have faint spirits. He's proclaiming to these people, the, the disenfranchised, the poor, he's proclaiming to them good news. And the reason is so that he can take off this, this sadness, this mourning, and replace it with gladness, with, with this garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And, and then the ultimate result here, or, or the 
not quite ultimate result, but the thing that happens in verse 3 is that they can be called oaks of righteousness. And so you have the disenfranchised that have been mourning. Good news is proclaimed to them. They now become oaks of righteousness. And the ultimate result is at the end of verse 3, it's that God may be glorified. God's compassion for those who are in need is ultimately fueled by a desire to be worshipped a right desire to be worshipped. And those of us who are going to rightly understand a theology of the disenfranchised, a theology of caring for the poor, must have as our passion the same thing that is God's passion. God's compassion is fueled by a passion for his glory. It's a message that the church is missing. I'm very grateful to the way that this church has responded to the needs of, of the orphans. And uh, our church has a, a reputation, we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit, our church has a reputation for being a, a church that's, that's passion, that has a passion for God and therefore a passion for the fatherless. And the passion that this church has for the fatherless, frankly, has given me some, some neat opportunities to, 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 to tell this message in some neat places. For example, this, this past year, I was invited to, to speak at a, at a conference because of the passion that our church has for the fatherless. And as I surveyed the, the teaching out there on caring for the fatherless and, and the disenfranchised, I don't hear a lot of messages helping people rightly orientate themselves to the glory of God. That is understanding that they must have a passion for God, and then that passion must flow into a compassion for others. In fact, um, I've mentioned this in passing before as well, but, but your passion for God and the ability that I had to, to speak at that, that conference has, has actually enabled me to even be working on a, on a book that uh, Kriegel Publications is going to be publishing on this idea of having a passion for the fatherless that, that, that flows from our passion for God. My point is that this, this teaching is rare and yet essential for us to rightly begin to engage in this type of ministry. And this, this theology of the disenfranchised is something that I've been thinking quite a bit over this, this past few years as we've engaged in this worship of God. I don't know if you've ever read the, the Amelia Bedelia books, but my, my kids love them. Amelia Bedelia is this, this maid who kind of gets everything wrong. She works for the Rogers family, and she takes every instruction that they give her very, very literally. So, for example, they'll say, Amelia Bedelia, will you please draw the drapes? And what does she do? Sits down and draws the drapes on a, it's a picture. But tell her, Amelia Bedelia, will you please measure two cups of rice? And what she do? She gets two cups of rice and a ruler and measures them. What's Amelia Bedelia's problem? She's doing what she's told to do, but she misses the spirit behind the instruction. And so she fails to do what she's really being asked to do. My contention is that the church is engaging in, com in compassion for the orphan, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, in, a, in, an, in an Amelia Bedelia type of way. We're doing the literal instruction that God tells us to do, but as we separate it from a passion for God, from understanding that we, we have compassion because God is compassionate, that God has a special compassion for these groups, and that God's compassion is fueled by, by a passion for his glory. Because we separate it from that, what we're engaging in is oftentimes worthless. Our compassion 
is fueled by passion for God. We cannot have passionless compassion. Secondly here, second main point I want us to talk about is this. God's people, God's people must have compassion for the disenfranchised. First sub point here that I want to talk about is this. We must be moved by compassion as we are presented with needs. We must be moved by compassion as we are presented with needs. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus and a lawyer are engaged in conversation about what one must do to inherit eternal life. What does the lawyer say? The lawyer tells Jesus one must keep the, the great commandments. In fact, let's, let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Look at this dialogue between Jesus and the lawyer that serves as a frame to the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus and the lawyer engage in this dialogue, and Jesus asks the, the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it as far as a, how does a person in, in, inherit eternal life? Luke chapter 10, now in verse 27. The lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. The lawyer says, wants to justify himself. He goes, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan sees this man who's wounded. And verse 33 tells us when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured out oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus ends the story, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, who had compassion. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You and I, as people who have received eternal life, have been transformed by our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, must have compassion. It is an essential characteristic of the person who's been transformed transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, it's an essential characteristic to have compassion on those who are in need. It should be impossible for us to see the need that is taking place in Haiti without our lives being changed in some way. Those of us who have eternal life who see that need, cannot passively observe it. Shame on us if we are unaffected. How can that not change us? Let me just throw out some statistics here as we think about the children of the world. These are from UNICEF. The developing world, 60 million children are born each year into households without proper sanitation facilities. 5,000 children, 5,000 children die every day of diarrheal diseases. 69 million children in sub-Saharan Africa are engaged in child labor. 250,000 children are involved in armed conflicts around the world in various capacities. 1.2 million children, 1.2 million children are trafficked every year, engaged in child traffic. It's a business that generate, generates up to $9.5 billion per year. 
Eight million boys and girls live in institutional care. One child under five dies every three seconds from primarily preventable causes. That's 25,000 children a year. In 2007, it was estimated that about 2.1 million children under 15 were living with HIV. 90% of all children with HIV live in sub-Saharan Africa. There are 12.1 million children in sub-Saharan Africa who have been orphaned by AIDS. I could go on, right? You and I must be moved by compassion as we're presented with the needs of the disenfranchised. Second truth of application here is this. Very appropriate for the Sanctity of Life Sunday as we think about the disenfranchised. We must oppose abortion and protect the rights of the innocent. We must oppose abortion and protect the rights of the innocent. Brothers and sisters, it's crucial that the church remains a beacon of light on this issue. I have strong feelings concerning health care bill. I have strong feelings concerning our tax policy. But I'll tell you this, they pale in comparison for my passion for this issue. I can live in a country spiritually, peacefully, that taxes me too much. I cannot be at peace spiritually in a country that allows the slaughter of the innocent. And may our outrage and our passion be in proportion to the offense. Believers, we must oppose legislation that promotes the killing of the innocent. We must support candidates who are staunchly pro-life. Next month, next month is a primary. If you are a believer, you have a responsibility to vote. You're culpable for the types of laws that exist in our land. And we must also provide for those who are pregnant and those who've even found themselves having gone through terrible procedures and processes and extended them the, the love and the grace of God. Thirdly, third point of application, we must be a church that passionately cares for the fatherless. Now, as we've talked about a theology that disenfranchised, I, I hope that, that you see that the big picture in this, I, I believe that if you have a passion for God, it's going to exhibit itself and not just a passion for the fatherless, but this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. This is the Sunday that we focus on the fatherless, and so let me close with this application for our church. We must be a church that passionately cares for the fatherless. This must be a, ch a church with our with its arms open wide that, that says, let the little children come here. 
I believe that God's name has been lifted up and glorified by this church. It's the theme of the video is to, that it's not just an individual family, a couple who cares for the fatherless. It's, it's a church as a whole that provides a, an environment for the orphan to come to. And it's a church as a whole that engages in ministry to orphanages and, and providing for children worldwide. It, it must be the church. And I believe that God has been glorified by your ministry in our community, it is known that if there's a child in need, this is a place that the people who are in charge of that child can turn to. And to date, every person that, that's come to us with, with children that, that need homes has been provided to you by, our, by the people in our church. That cannot stop. That cannot stop. Our church must be a church that continues to say, let the little children come here. We will be a church that provides home, sanctuary, prayer for the fatherless. Eric mentioned several areas of application, and I, I appreciate that. I would, I would agree. You know, the first thing he mentioned was, was prayer. There is no reason that I can think of, and maybe you can think of one. I can't think of any reason that every person in this room who's a believer should not be signed up to participate in that, in at least that, that prayer email that goes out once a week that lets people know about the prayer needs. And I encourage you, stop by the table here as, as you leave here this morning, that's just right outside, and, and at least sign up to be involved in the prayer ministry. And perhaps God would call you to, to, to give, to, to financially provide resources for children and families who are bringing children into their home. And maybe God is, would stir within some of your hearts a desire to, to do more and say, you know what, I'm not going to, not only am I, I going to be engaged in, in praying for the fatherless, I want to bring the fatherless into my home. And if that's your desire or you, you maybe think missions or being involved in, 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 in orphan work, uh, orphanages, I'd encourage you to come back Sunday, Sunday in March when we begin our adoption Bible study. And it's, it's normally offered as an elective. Uh, this, this month or this, this semester, what we're going to do is offer that elective during the Sunday school hour. So that those of you who feel God's call to engage and care for the fatherless have the opportunity to do so uh, in, in a, convenient, a more convenient format. And so I encourage you, to, if God's working your heart that way, to be involved in that study. Be involved in the children's ministries in our church. What I really loved about that video was how it showed our, our children in, engaged in, in worship of God. And, and, and many of the children that you saw in that video, maybe some of you don't even know, are adopted, are adopted, are, are former orphans. And our church has welcomed them into our walls. And for the glory of God, they're now engaged in worship. Does that excite you? <laughs> it excites me. Yeah, praise God, right? Praise God. That book is wrong. Justice in the Verbs has got it totally wrong. We don't have to make a choice between heaven and earth. As we're passionate about the God of heaven, God allows us to have compassion here on earth. That should excite you. We engage in ministry to the weak so that they can worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this church. I thank you for this church. I, I thank you that You've allowed us to engage in this ministry. And Father, I'm confident that there are going to be some things you do in the life of our church over the coming years that, that we can't even fathom right now. I, I sense your spirit at work among your people, and not just in this church, but, but your, your church throughout the, the world. And so, Lord, I'm excited that our church is, is able to participate this. 
God, give us your grace to be obedient. May you continue to lavish compassion on us as you allow us to care for the fatherless. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.